Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. morning. If you have a Bible, would you take it this morning and turn to Matthew, the gospel of Matthew chapter 2. While you're turning there, let me pray for us. So Father, in my preparation this week and because of the prayers of your people who have been faithful to pray for this moment, This week, we pray that now your spirit, by your spirit, you would come and you would speak to us, that you would help us to humble ourselves before your word, the authority of your word. Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so come and do a supernatural work, Lord, that only you can do, that you would open eyes and spiritual hearts and ears to hear and to see, to receive your word this morning, to behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So do that work, I pray, through my weakness. Help us this morning, we ask, for the glory of your name, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. We're looking at verses 1 through 12. Today marks the third week of our Advent sermon series together, where we are looking at the Christmas story from four different points of view, or four different, you might say, camera angles. I guess tonight would be a fifth if you come back this evening. But we've been looking at the Christmas story, and we've seen it from... Joseph's perspective, we've seen it from Mary's perspective in recent weeks, but this week we're going to be looking at it from the wise men's perspective, or you could say the Magi's story. So chronologically then, we are a little bit out of order here this morning because we're going to look at Jesus' birth tonight at our candlelight service. And then next week, we're going to look at the shepherd's story on Christmas Eve. So we're a little bit out of order here with the arrival of the Magi taking place after the birth of Jesus. But this morning, I wanted to focus specifically on the Magi. I wanted us to look at this story. In fact, I thought it would be most appropriate given this particular Sunday of Advent. Because today is the day in which we as a church will be collecting our global missions offering. And the truth is, church, that you and I cannot preach on the Christmas story without talking about missions. You cannot talk about Christmas and not talk about the need to go to the nations with the good news of the gospel. 
In fact, we haven't, I would say, truly celebrated Christmas unless we are compelled to go and tell that Christ's coming into the world at Christmas necessitates our going to the nations. And so, what better characters to focus on here this morning in collecting our Christmas offering than these unlikely Christmas guests from the East, these foreign Gentiles who have come to worship Christ who is born. Matthew chapter 2, if you have your place there, would you please stand with me out of honor for the reading of God's word? I'll begin reading in verse 1. The Apostle Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was greatly troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, great, uh, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary as mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated. If I had to summarize this passage for you in a single statement, the, the central point of verses 1 to 12, the main idea here of this text, and then also the main idea of this sermon this morning, here's what I would say. That God's great goal for the world is the joyful worship of Christ among all the peoples of the earth. That God's great goal for the world is the joyful worship of Christ among all the peoples of the earth. The end for which God created the world is the worship, the joyful worship of King Jesus among all the peoples, all the nations, all the tribes of the earth. That's the point of this story. And not only is that the point of verses 1 to 12, that's actually the point of the entire Bible as well. 
that the story of Scripture is that God himself is gathering a people before the throne of Jesus in heaven from every tribe and every tongue and every nation of the earth. The Apostle John, if you remember, in in Revelation chapter 7, he sees this vision of the end, the end of history. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, here's what he sees. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Church, this is the goal of all of human history. But that's what we see here as well in Matthew chapter 2, that very same picture. In fact, it's, it's sort of like in snapshot form here in this very familiar story of the wise men. No doubt you are somewhat familiar with this story, or at least you have seen it displayed in most nativity scenes. The nativity scene normally includes a typical cast of characters, doesn't it? You have, of course, the baby Jesus front and center. You've got Mary and Joseph. You've got the lowly shepherds. You've got the three wise men with their funny-looking hats, including uh, an assortment of on-looking barnyard animals. A little drummer boy. No, no little drummer boy. In fact, it's safe to say that even the inclusion of these wise men, or the magi, as they're often called in our nativity scenes, might also be a little misguided as well. Because their arrival, according to the biblical story, takes place, it seems, much later after the events describing Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2. In fact, if you look here, notice in chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 1, Matthew simply says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But that isn't what's most surprising here. No, what's most surprising isn't their absence from the nativity scene. What's most surprising is who these guys were, why they had come, how they had gotten here, and what their arrival now means. Because not only is their coming to find the Christ child the fulfillment of ancient prophecy, as we'll see, but it also marks a new chapter now in God's redemptive plan for all the nations of the earth. So this is a very pivotal moment. So let's then begin here first, if we could, by trying just to get a better understanding of the cast of characters here in this story. And then I want to walk through this story with you. And then at the end, I want to make some application. First, notice the Magi. The Magi. Verses 1 to 12, this story, it is unique to Matthew's gospel. No other gospel writer includes this story of the Magi introducing us here to this mysterious band of far-off travelers identified in verse 1 as wise men from the east who have come, verse 2, to find 
and worship the one who is born king of the Jews. Verse 2, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now again, there are several Christmas traditions that have grown up around these guys that I think need to be addressed, need to be debunked. Not, not to be a, a Scrooge on your long-standing Christmas traditions, but simply because we want, well, our Christmas story to come from the Bible. First of all, notice there is no indication here that there were three wise men. There is no indication that there were three. That tradition is probably derived from the three gifts that we see presented there. Notice in verse 11 of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. No, rather, we should probably have in our minds here this whole entourage of wise men. A whole entourage with their armies of camels and their armies of servants and their hordes of riches eagerly seeking to find this newborn king. So don't think three, think many. It's okay to have three in your nativity scene. You got to limit it somehow. But think many. Second, they weren't kings. They weren't kings. We three kings of Orion are. No, they were not. Instead, they would most likely have served as counselors to kings. They would have been advisors to a royal court. They were wise men or magi. Leon Morris comments, wise men doesn't mean those endowed with wisdom in general. These, these weren't just wise guys, but rather they were students of the stars. They were, Morris says, experts in astrology, in the interpretation of dreams and various other secret arts. The ESV Study Bible says that they were astrologists, those who interpreted dreams studying sacred writings, and pursued wisdom and magic, magi. So think of these guys like the magicians in Pharaoh's court challenging Moses. Meaning what? In other words, meaning these guys were more like magicians. They, they, they were more like star-led wizards. Gandalf, Dumbledore, eat your heart out. No, these guys, they would have been experts in astrology. They would have been experts in astronomy. They would have been experts in dark magic. In other words, their lives were wrapped up. They were experts in pagan practices. Just so you know, so there's no confusion here, the Bible explicitly condemns astrology and horoscopes and divination. But... Listen, despite all of that, despite the fact that they were astrologers, astronomers, they were pagans, and since it would have been the stars that would have had their attention, notice in verse 2, God graciously communicates with them and he leads them to the one born king of the Jews by a star. Verse 2. Upon their arrival, they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So this star is God at work. 
Now the question is always asked, okay, how did these guys know this? How did, how did they know of one to be born who would be king of the Jews? Where did they get that information? Right? How, how did they know that a star was supposed to guide them to this king? Well, first of all, it isn't beyond the realm of possibility here that God just simply revealed it to them. He can do that, you know. In fact, if you look down in verse 12, he speaks to them in a dream, telling them to go another way. But even more likely than that, these guys, I think, were at least somewhat familiar, it seems, with Old Testament Scripture. Because, don't forget, these are wise men from the East, meaning most likely Babylon or Persia. The East, and if you remember, the Jews, while in exile, spent a lot of time in Babylon. And so it's very plausible then that these guys, with Jews living among them, they knew the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, when they come to Herod, what do they say? They, they don't say, uh, we, we don't know why we're here. We're just following a star. No. Verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They knew. They, they understood that there was a prophecy looking forward to one who would be born king of the Jews. So perhaps they had read Numbers chapter 24. Remember Numbers chapter 24, it's the prophecy of Balaam. If you don't remember Balaam, you probably remember his talking donkey. Balaam, a Gentile, pagan, prophet, sent, he was hired to curse the nation of Israel, and he winds up blessing the nation of Israel. It's a great story. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, Balaam says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph, meaning the enemies of God. So Balaam prophesies of a star rising out of Jacob, a scepter, a kingly scepter rising out of Israel, and this star would lead them to this king, the king of the Jews. Now, many natural scientific explanations have been offered to explain this star. It was a comet. It was a supernova. It was, you know, the aligning of Jupiter and Saturn. And <laughs> but <laughs> I just want you to notice Look at verse 2 and at verse 9. What seems to be very clear is that there is something supernatural going on here. This bright star appears to the Magi, revealing the exact location of this baby born king of the Jews. And then verse 9, look there. The star that they had seen when it rose 
went before them until it came to rest over the exact location of where this baby had been born. Folks, this is no ordinary star. There are no stars in the natural world that rest over people's houses, okay? No, Matthew is drawing our attention to the miraculous, supernatural, intervening work of God in this star. And when they saw it, they set out on a lengthy journey. Some scholars think it's probably around 40 days or so. You look at a map, it's long stretches of desert here. They come to worship the one this star revealed. And in verse 2, notice, when they get to Jerusalem, they're asking, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Which leads us then to... The second character in this story. Notice second, Herod. Verses 3 and 4. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So verse 3, we are introduced now to King Herod. And what Matthew wants to show us here is the drastic contrast between the response of the Magi to the birth of Jesus, these Gentile foreign pagans, with the reaction of King Herod and the rest of the Jews. Did you notice their differing responses here? The, the, the one has come to worship him. The other is troubled. And some, it seems, at least indifferent. Unaffected. Verse 3. After the Magi arrive in Jerusalem asking him where the Christ child has been born, Herod, we learn, is troubled by this news. He's troubled. Why is that? Well, because he perceives that the birth of this child, king of the Jews, poses a threat. So, he's threatened by this news. It's a threat to his rule. Now, who is Herod? Who is King Herod? Well, this is none other than Herod the Great. He's called king, although... He was really more like a tetriarch. He was more like a governor over certain provinces within the Roman Empire. Here, Judea. He was given that title, 40 BC. But Herod wasn't a Jew. He's a usurper to the throne. He, he, he is, he's been appointed by the Roman Caesar. He's not the king of the Jews. And when he hears about this newborn king born in Judea, he is troubled. Who was Herod? Well, Herod, we know, he was politically savvy, he was shrewd, he was successful. There were several notable achievements that earned him that title, Herod the Great. But he was also an evil man. He was a wicked, merciless, ruthless tyrant. He murdered a wife. 
He murdered two sons and other relatives as well, and all because he was paranoid of the threat they were and that he thought they were plotting against him. One commentator says it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son. He was a wicked, ruthless, merciless, evil tyrant. And notice in verse 3, not only is he troubled, but so also is all Jerusalem with him. Now why? Well, because they know what kind of guy he is. They know what he's like. In fact, their concern seems justified here because later, notice beginning in verse 13, he doesn't just commit genocide, he commits infanticide, killing all the infant boys under the age of two in Bethlehem and in the region, trying to snuff out this new king because this child poses a threat to his rule and he's troubled. So what does Herod do then upon hearing the news from the Magi? Well, look there, verse 4. After they arrive asking, where is this king? Where has he been born? Notice in verse 4, he immediately goes to work trying to track down the newborn king, this rival king. And he calls in the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Look there, verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, these would have been the experts In the scriptures, assembling them all, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So notice, even Herod knows that the birthplace of this king should be known. And they would know. He doesn't know. They should know, though. Verses 5 and 6. They don't have to deliberate long. It's not like, hey, Herod, give us, give us some time. We'll come back to you with an answer. No, they, they knew where he was to be born. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. And so they knew the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. The scripture's clear. Verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, For so it is written by the prophet. And then in verse 6, they quote from the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So Bethlehem would be, according to this prophecy, some 700 years or so prior to this, where he will be born. So, Note, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem fulfills Micah's prophecy. Now, why Bethlehem? Why here? Well, not just because Micah said so, but because Bethlehem was the birthplace of another king. You know who that is? King David. This is the city of David. So not only is Jesus' birth in Bethlehem fulfilling Micah's prophecy, he's also fulfilling the prophecy made to King David, 2 Samuel 7, that one of his sons is going to reign on the throne of David forever. Now, one interesting thing about Micah's prophecy here, notice in verse 6, or 
at least Matthew's recording of Micah's prophecy in verse 6, where he says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, Micah 5.2 doesn't contain the phrase, by no means. It just says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, which Matthew leaves out and replaces with by no means. What's going on here? Did Matthew misquote Micah? No. Micah is emphasizing how small and humble Bethlehem is, probably no more than a few hundred people. How small it is to be the birthplace of the Messiah? But Matthew adds here, by no means, sort of like divine commentary, to in effect update Micah's prophecy now after Jesus' birth, because now it's no longer too little. It's now no longer insignificant. No, this tiny village now is the central focus of all of history. By no means, least, now. So he's to be born there. And so then, after the religious leaders inform King Herod, Bethlehem will be the birthplace of the Messiah. Which, by the way, is just a mere seven, ten miles outside the city of Jerusalem. So just think Mount Vernon to Woodlawn. That's the distance between the two. Verses 7 and 8, we see now Herod's murderous plot begin to unfold, and these wise men now come back in center stage. Look there, verse 7. Herod now inquires of the Magi as part of his evil plan when they saw the star so that he could determine how old this child would be. That's why he decrees, notice down in verse 16, that every child under the age of two is to be killed. He's just going to cover his bases here. And then in verse 8, he sends them on to Bethlehem to find this child and report back to him. Verse 8, so that I too may come and worship him. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Which they don't do, according to verse 12. They, God speaks to them in a dream and they go about another way back to the east, where they've come from. But look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. The question that they asked back in verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews, is now answered by these Gentile seekers. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, this miraculous supernatural event Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose back in Babylon, that they had followed all of these months now, when they before them went until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And verse 10, look at this. When they saw the star resting over the home where this child was, notice how Matthew describes the reaction what they felt when they saw the star, 
they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's some serious joy, my friends. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, you can't get any happier. Not just rejoicing, but rejoicing exceedingly and exceedingly with great joy. That's some serious joy. Verse 11, Matthew tells us that by the time the Magi arrive in Bethlehem, the baby is no longer in the manger, but now in a home of some kind. And so, <laughs> just try if you can to imagine this scene. What, what, what do they say when Mary and Joseph come to the front door? Well, we don't know. But here's what we do know. Verse 11. The moment they lay their eyes on this newborn king of the Jews, they fell down and worshipped him. They have come to give the Son of God what is due his name. Joyful worship. They fell down and worshipped. And they come bearing gifts. Verse 11. They opened their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now don't try to read too much symbolism into these gifts. You know, myrrh, they say, is a spice for anointing the dead. So this is foreshadowing his death. No, these would simply be costly gifts. Spices, perfumes, gold, costly gifts fit for a king. In fact, if, if there's any symbolism to these gifts at all, it would be what we read earlier in our service in Psalm 72. Psalm 72, verse 10, may the kings of Tarshish, that's, that's Spain, by the way, and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba. That's, we're now down in Africa. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. So the nations of the earth here. Now coming to worship Christ this newborn king. The, the one, the stars move to proclaim these Gentile pagans journeying from far away to fall down at his feet. What a scene. What a scene. What does it mean? Why is Matthew telling you this? What does he want you to see? Why, why are these unlikely guests at Christmas, these Gentile pagan magicians, part of the Christmas story? What's happening here? So then let me just conclude this morning by offering to you three applications. Three things that I think Matthew wants us to draw from the Magi's story. Here's the first, and probably the most important. 
Application number one. God is raising up the son of David to bring in the nations. God is raising up the son of David to bring in the nations. This is the story the entire Bible is telling. That God will lift up his king and when he does, all the nations of the earth will be drawn to him. That's the story. That's the story the Bible's telling. That's the story from Genesis to Revelation over and over again. When God raises up his king, all the nations of the earth are going to be drawn to him. Oh, I wish we had time just to walk through the whole Bible and I could show you this. But let me just show you a few places, okay? This is the repeated refrain of the Old Testament. God shines his spotlight on the king, and when he does, the nations come in. Show you a few places. First, get your fingers ready. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, the first book in our Bibles. God calls a pagan man out of the land of Ur named Abram, later to be named Abraham. And God gives him this promise. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So Abraham, leave your pagan land. Go to the land I'm going to show you. And then notice the promise he gives to Abram. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And notice this promise. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And through you, through one of Your descendants, through you, I'm going to bless all the families, all the peoples, all the nations of the earth, Jew and Gentile together. And then, as Matthew's gospel opens, look there, Matthew chapter 1, his very first words in this book, introducing us to this king, he gives us this genealogy of Jesus Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of who? Abraham. Jesus is the descendant of David, who will be king on David's throne forever, but he's also the descendant of Abraham, who will bless all the nations of the earth. He's the son of David, he's the son of Abraham. And here in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew is now telling us, this king, this son of David, this son of Abraham has arrived. And as soon as he enters the scene, as soon as the spotlight begins to shine on him, then almost immediately enter stage right, come these foreign Gentiles, magi from the east, the nations streaming in to worship him. 
It's almost like we're getting a snapshot of the whole story of the Bible right here. God raises up the son of David, bringing in the nations, blessing the nations. Let's see another one. 1 Kings chapter 10. Can you find it? 1 Kings chapter 10. You don't want to turn there? Just listen. The queen of Sheba. Uh, Now we're down in Africa. Okay? Queen of Sheba journeys to see King Solomon in Jerusalem, who's the son of David. Verse 2. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue. That's an entourage. With camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. Sounds an awful lot like Matthew chapter 2 to me. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon... The house that he built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. There was no more breath left in her. This Gentile queen sees the wisdom of this son of David, and she's breathless. And it's meant to be a picture of this future king who's coming where all the nations of the earth are going to stream in. How about one more? Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60 verses 1 to 3. Notice this prophecy of the Messiah, the son of David. Latter half of Isaiah's prophecy. And he says this in Isaiah 60 verse 3, or chapter 60 verse 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. What is happening here? God's king gets lifted up, the light shines on him, and the nations can't help but irresistibly be drawn to his light. And that's just three Old Testament passages. We could go to Psalm 47, we could go to Psalm 72, we could go to Daniel chapter 7, passage after passage, all speaking of this son of David who's going to bring in the nations. So then, these magi are invited because by God they represent the nations, Gentile sinners. They are foreshadowing the inclusion of the Gentiles made in this promise to Abraham. So what God is doing is He is making here a public statement with the arrival of these magi and He's saying that my redemptive purposes are now extending beyond the borders of Israel and they are extending to all the nations of the earth. That the gospel isn't just for Jews, it is for Gentile sinners like you and me. And that Jesus isn't just the King of the Jews, He is the Savior of the world. 
every tribe, every tongue, every nation. This son of David has come to bring in and to gather in the nations. And he's not just the savior king of the Jews. He's the savior king of the world. Of Central Asia. Afghanistan and Tajikistan and Russia and Iraq and Iran and Russia and the United States. China. He's the king. He's the savior of the world. When the son of David gets lifted up, the nations are going to come in. Which leads us to our second application. If he's the savior of the world, if he's the king of the world, then church, we must go to the nations. God is calling us now as the church to go to the nations. Isn't it interesting that Matthew's gospel opens here in Matthew chapter 2 with the nations coming in, but by the time Matthew's gospel ends... Matthew chapter 28, he's commissioning his disciples to go to the nations. Matthew 28, after his death and resurrection, just before he ascends back to heaven, he sends to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm the king of the world. Go, therefore, because I'm Lord of all, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And therefore, church, we must go. And we must give so that others can go. This isn't an add-on to the mission. This is the mission. Church, our concern for missions isn't a side ministry of our church. It's the calling of the church. It's the mission of the church. Focusing on mission shouldn't be something we just do in the month of December. This is the wolf and wharf. This is the heartbeat. This is what we're called to do and who we're called to be. Because they must hear of the one who's been born king of the Jews because there's no other hope. There's no other savior. We must go to the nations. Romans chapter 10, Paul says it like this. He says, Everyone, everyone, Jew or Gentile, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? We must go. And this is why we believe that the mission of the church cannot be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. No matter how dark it may seem, no matter how difficult it may seem, no matter how unreached the world may be, I mean, what is it? Half the world's population is unreached, meaning they have no gospel presence, they have no missionary access, they've never heard the name of Jesus, they can live and die in, in this life and never meet anybody who could share the gospel with them, and yet, 
In Revelation chapter 7, it promises there is going to be gathered around the throne of Jesus people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation of the earth at the end of the age. And if we will just lift up the king and say, Jesus is Lord, proclaiming why he is Lord, he died on a cross and he rose again from the dead, it will draw in the nations. If we'll just proclaim it and speak it and tell our neighbors about it and support and send missionaries to the ends of the earth, it's going to draw in the nations. Because when the son of David gets lifted up, all the nations are coming in. Do we have that heart for the nations? One of my favorite things to read is missionary biographies. Oh, if you do anything in 2014, read a missionary biography. They, they humble me. They convict me. I stand in awe of men and women who've given their lives to go to the ends of the earth for the sake of the gospel and to see the gospel go to the nations. And one of my absolute favorite stories, absolute favorite, is Adoniram Judson to Burma, modern-day Myanmar. And I just want you to hear Judson's heart for the nations and the gospel reaching the ends of the earth in a letter that he writes to his first wife, Anne, her father. She died on the mission field, along with another wife that he had, by the way. He writes this letter to her father, asking if he can marry his daughter, knowing he's going to the mission field, and in this day, he'd probably never see her again. This is what he says. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you. For the sake of perishing souls. For the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Is that our heart for the nations? For this Savior King who's been born. Church, we go for the sake of his name among all the nations. For the glory of his name that he deserves among all the nations. And so here in just a few moments, as you get ready to give to our global missions offering, as you do that, here's what we're praying. Here's what we're asking. Lord, gather in the nations. Lift up the sun. Exalt Christ. Gather in your people. May the gospel go 
to the ends of the earth. May the gospel go to the nations for the glory of our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because when the Son of David is lifted up, it's going to draw on the nations. One final application, and I'll be done. I'd be amiss if I didn't mention this. And I'll give it in the form of a question. Have you been brought in to worship the king? Have you been brought in to worship the king? You know, one of the things I told you Matthew's doing here is he's showing us these contrasting pictures of the Magi, the Gentiles, with that of Herod and the religious leaders of the Jews. Really, these are varying responses to the announcement of his birth. It's it's sort of like examples for you and I. And what Matthew wants you to do is he wants you to ask yourself the question, okay, who am I? Am I Herod? Am I the Jewish leaders? Or am I the Magi? So Herod we see, is antagonistic toward Jesus. He is hostile toward Jesus. He will bow to no one. Maybe that's you. I'm going to be king of my life. I'm not bowing to anybody. I'm going to be lord of my domain. Or maybe you're more like these religious leaders, these chief priests and scribes who aren't antagonistic to him yet. But they sure seem at least indifferent. Why? Well, they know the scripture. They know Numbers 24. They know Isaiah 60. They know Matthew chapter 5, exactly where this child is going to be born. And when these wise men from the east come, following the star, asking where the child has been born, they know and they tell him, it's just 10 miles outside the city, but they have no desire to go see him. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're just indifferent to Jesus. Which, by the way, is just as deadly as being antagonistic. They're playing religion. And they have no interest in worshiping the Son of God. Let that be a warning. Churches can be filled with these kinds of people. Playing religion. And you have no intent on worshiping the Son of God. True religion is worshiping Jesus. Maybe you're here simply because it's Christmas and that's what you do. Do you worship the Son of God? And these magi, they give us a beautiful picture of what it looks like when you do. One of the essential characteristics of biblical conversion. Verse 10. Joyful worship. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great worship. Oh, is that your response? Is your heart moved with joy? Ready to sacrifice your time? Ready to sacrifice your treasures? Ready to sacrifice your money? Ready to sacrifice your life for this king? To offer him your very best gifts? To bow down? Oh, my And this scene, friends, is our invitation from God himself to Gentile sinners like you and me to respond to the good news of the one born to be the savior of the world. And the invitation to these guys is extended to you and to me as well, inviting you to bow down at the feet of the savior.
born to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. Let's, let's join them. Let's bow down before him. Let's adore him. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the king of the Jews, the savior of the world. Because when the son of David is lifted up, he's going to draw all nations to himself. Father, thank you that the light of the world is dawned. Gathering now all the nations of the earth. The harvest is plentiful. There is great need, but the laborers are few. And so send out laborers into the fields. Take the money that we give here this morning to fulfill the Great Commission so that the gospel of Christ would reach the ends of the earth for the glory of our King. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.